Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. So welcome back as we continue this mini-series about worship, what is it, and how do we pursue it. Last episode, we talked about how the way that we live can be an act of worship. That looked at worship more in a broad sense, looked at a f- a briefly at a few of the Greek and uh, mostly Greek words that are translated worship, and consider different ways how God looks at the way that we live as a way that we can worship Him, of, of ascribing honor, of ascribing worth to His name. This week we're going to look at a little more narrow sense of more directly ascribing worth to the Lord, of ascribing honor to His name by what we say, by, by our verbal uh, proclamations by our singing. We're going to get into that and looking at ascribing worth uh, of honoring of praise to the Lord uh, verbally. There's a few passages that help to set this up. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 verses uh, 9 through 11 are a beautiful uh, picture of this. And it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanksgiving to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture, and there's uh, of worship. It specifically says that they worship and uh, cast their crowns before the throne. These these verses aren't uh, divine uh, authorization for the group casting crowns. As much as I love their music and think what they do is good, um, but that's what it's drawn from. It's trying to picture that idea of ascribing honor to the Lord, and that's what this these verses teach us about worship is the idea of giving honor to the Lord. Look, what they say is, worthy are you. They're declaring God's worth by what they say, that for Him to receive glory and honor and power for who He is and what He has done. He has create, created all things. Another passage is in Hebrews 13, uh, Hebrews 13, 15. It says uh, about Christ, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Some translations render acknowledge as give thanks, but the word uh, has more of a literal sense of confessing, of acknowledging who God is and declaring that, declaring who He is, of uh, submitting ourselves to Him and giving Him honor by what we say. There's different ways that we can do that. I'm using say uh, kind of loosely here to describe verbal ways of giving, of acknowledging who the Lord is, of ascribing honor and worth to his name. So how exactly do we do that? It may That may sound pretty pretty simple. Okay, yeah, we, we give uh, honor to the Lord by what we say. So do we, do we really need to dig into that more? Well, there's a couple different ways that we can worship the Lord verbally. Uh, one way is by declarations and testimonies that those themselves can be an act of worship to the Lord. 
Hebrews 11, uh, 21, talks about how Jacob worshipped as he blessed Joseph's sons. Well, when you look in those passages there in Genesis, we don't see the word worship per se. But I do think we have a picture of worship there in Genesis 48, where Jacob has already had his name changed to Israel. Joseph is, brings his two sons to, to uh, Israel. And then in Genesis 48, 11, it says, And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. He's declaring the Lord's worth, the Lord's glory, by saying, Joseph, I didn't even expect to see you alive again. And God went above and beyond that. He didn't just let me see you, but he's let me see your children. And so he, he's giving honor to the Lord of, de, of ascribing worth to the Lord, declaring his power, his glory, his thanksgiving for the Lord and what he has done. For a New Testament example, we could look to of the disciples in Matthew 14, when they're in the boat with Jesus and Jesus calms the, calms the sea. And in Matthew 14, 33, it says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There it specifically tells us that they worshipped. But they declared who Jesus was. They were accurately declaring that he was the Son of God. And they stood in awe of how he had displayed his power by calming the sea. Uh, another example would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul is there addressing some issues that have gone wrong in the service and the local gathering there in Corinth. And he's trying to help bring them back to a right understanding of their use of the gifts and why they should be used right. And we'll get into some more of this uh, next episode. But... um. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is uh, convicted by all, he is called to account by all. And <clears throat> the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God, and declare that God is really among you. So there Paul is linking this person's worshiping the Lord with declaring something true about God, that God was truly among his people. He was worshiping in light of who God is, what God was doing, and even in light of who he was, recognizing, uh, yeah, I have things I need to repent of. He was, called, he was convicted by how God was working, and he worshiped the Lord in response. So worship can be something like a prayer, or like, or like a declaration or a testimony, a time of thanksgiving before the, uh, others, of declaring who the Lord is, acknowledging how he's answered prayer, um, just acknowledging how the Lord is working. All these things can be an act of verbal worship to the Lord. And uh, speaking of answered prayer, that's another form of worship is prayer. Prayer can be worship because we are acknowledging the, that the Lord is in control. We're acknowledging that the Lord is to be worshipped as we ascribe work, uh, honor to Him. We uh, give thanks to His name through prayer. All those things are aspects uh, aspects of prayer. Um, but also by offering our petitions, offering our supplications before Him, is an act of worship. 
Uh, this is clearly seen in Daniel 6. Even though the word worship isn't necessarily used, we can see that that's what it's being talked about. Because the leaders there they, they uh, of, of Persia, they come to Darius and they make up this scheme to try to trap Daniel by making a law that for a certain period of time, no one could offer a petition to anyone but the king. Well, Daniel basically says, no, I'm not doing that. Because he understood that that act of offering a petition in that way was worship. And that belonged to the Lord alone. And so he continued to, three times a day, I believe it says, to offer his petitions to the Lord. He worshipped God by praying to the Lord and offering his petitions to him. Prayer can be an act of worship. Again, as we offer the supplications and petitions, as we said earlier about the thanksgiving of just glorying in who the Lord is and what he has done as we pray, as we offer praise through our prayer. And then, of course, worship can be singing. And that's what we usually think about when we talk about worship. Uh, we usually associate worship with music. And certainly we should, uh, but not exclusively. As we saw last episode and have seen so far, worship is much more than just singing. Uh, if you will... Uh, Think about like a Euler diagram where you've got a, a smaller circle inside a bigger circle. The bigger circle is worship and the smaller circle would be singing uh, in this sense of singing praise to the Lord. And so when you consider this, we'd see that all of singing is worship, but not all of worship is singing. That could be something to help, helpful to think about. And what uh, kind of a, a tangent I've been thinking about recently is the idea that singing in general whether it's praise to the Lord or not, I think does worship something. Maybe not in a worship in the sense of uh, of ascribing honor in the sense of like uh, divinity uh, to something, but showing, hey, this is worthy. That you, we, sh we should uh, want to pursue this. We should want to honor this. Whether it's uh, family, the importance of family, or romantic love, or the loss of a loved one. Uh, all these things. When you look at the lyrics of music, both songs that are more joyful and upbeat, even ones that are slower or even mournful ballads, point to something that should be desired. And so that's kind of a side point that maybe I'll explore later. But the idea that, that singing seems to be linked to the idea of ascribing worth to something. And so with that understanding, of course, our, our, we should be singing praise to the Lord. We should be worshiping Him through our music. Psalm 66 verse 4 says, All the earth worships you and sings uh, praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Selah. There, that specifically tells us that our, our singing is part of our worship to the Lord. That we are declaring His worth, giving honor to His name, uh, praising Him for who He is and what He has done. We look over and over again in the Psalms, uh, we, we see that and throughout all of Scripture actually. And one of the primary things that we praise the Lord for, for in terms of what he has done, is redemption. It is salvation, how he has delivered his people. Over and over and over again, we see throughout Scripture this theme being developed. And in fact, it's the motivation behind the very first song and the very last explicit song in Scripture. From Exodus 15 to Revelation 15, God delivers his people and they are praising him. Exodus 15 being there where God has brought his people through the Red Sea and brought them through and delivered them from Pharaoh's army. And there's this, this bursting out in song. 
We've seen references to music or musical instruments before that point, but we have not seen, seen people actually singing before this point where God delivers his people in this marvelous way. And then Revelation 15 being this incredible host uh, standing in heaven, seemingly, I believe, after the rapture, where they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb of praise to the Lord for what he has done. So, worship in the verbal sense. It can be declarations or testimonies. It can be prayer. And it can be singing. All these ways are, are, uh, are ways that we use our words to worship, to honor the Lord, to praise Him, to give thanks, to glorify His name. But are we told how, exactly how we are to do that? Well, not exactly, but we are told some things that should characterize our worship. Some guiding principles that should be part of of our worship and fit with this idea of more narrow aspect of of verbal worship. Several of the common words that we talked about last week have the idea of kneeling or of bowing down. And in fact, they're, uh, one of the words that's translated worship in the book of Matthew is translated bow in different places, such as uh, the leper coming to Jesus and asking to be healed, uh, the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, the Canaanite woman, the servant, the unforgiving servant in that parable. We could go on and on with example. The, the mother of James and John's, we, James and John, you could just go on. But the idea behind that word is when we worship, we should be ascribing honor by that, that's pictured, we have that word picture of kneeling or of bowing ourselves before God. Whether that means we're actually on our, knee, on our knees or not, whether we're sitting, whether we're standing, whatever we're doing. We should have that inner attitude or that inner posture of kneeling, of acknowledging he's God and we're not. Should having that aspect of honor before it, uh, of honoring him. We should also not be flippant in our worship. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. It's a recognition of who He is. Of He is this holy God. He is a consuming fire. And so we should be grateful for what He has done. Grateful for His redemption. Grateful for how He works in, in each of our lives individually. But there should be a reverence. There should be an awe that characterizes our worship, that reverence of not coming to the Lord flippantly. We must acknowledge who He is. And then we should also, our, our worship should be marked by holiness. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His, na due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, we're going to get into more of that here, uh, Lord willing, in two episodes when we talk about the worship that God rejects. But our lives should be marked by holiness. And what we, how we worship the Lord should be marked by holiness. We should not be flippant, but we should not be, uh, be crude or, or flirting with sin when it comes to worshiping the Lord. There, so, a couple of the things that we just saw, just to summarize right there, was that inner posture of honoring the Lord, that picture of bowing or kneeling, whether we physically are or not, but of worshiping the Lord as we give honor to Him, acknowledging who He is, should be marked by uh, 
Reverence should be marked by holiness. But what about emotions? Do emotions play any part in this? Well, yeah, I think they do. We cannot separate our emotions from what we do. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. Um, joy. Joy is one emotion or one mark of, of worship. It's not the only one. But over and over again, we see the idea of, of worship being marked by joy. For example, consider Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with joy. Come to his presence with singing. There it marks our worship with, with singing, with joy, uh, our service to the Lord. All that combines there with the attitude of joy. Or if you want to go a little bit further in Psalms, to Psalm 150, with that explosion of praise to the Lord with pretty much every category of, of music and even dance and celebration to the Lord with this, this vibrant aspect of joy. And there's other aspects uh, to this you could look at when um, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, uh, when, when the wall is restored under Nehemiah, the, the joyful shouting that happens there. There's many examples where, where joy, uh, even exuberance, uh, that can even be expressed physically at times, with, um, is appropriate. It does not counteract that reverence when it's done in the, in the right way, when it's not just hype or trying to uh, play off of emotions. But as we consider who the Lord is and what He has done and respond in gratitude, we can respond in joy to the Lord. But then on the opposite end, Grief can accompany worship. Job teaches us this. You may be thinking, what does Job have to teach us about worship? Well, consider what happens when Job hears that his children have died, he's lost his servant, a lot of his servants, his livestock's all been captured. What does he do? Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tell us. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job has basically lost everything. He, he shaved his head, he tore his robe, his expression of just utter grief and devastation. And he worships. He was not celebrating in that sense. But he was blessing the Lord. He was acknowledging who he was. He had nothing. He deserved nothing. But he was worshiping the Lord in the midst of that grief. He was, mis he was worshiping in the midst of his grief over the circumstance he was going through. We also see David worshiping in grief over his sin in repentance. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This was before Christ came, so the worship was through the sacrifices there. But David was acknowledging that ultimately wasn't what God was after, those external acts. He wanted that the change of heart, that repentance. And so as David is broken over his sin, over his sin of adultery, 
he is worshiping to the Lord. He's crying out. He's acknowledging when you read the psalm. He's acknowledging who God is, the justice of God. He, he's declaring that, yes, God is right to hold him to account for sin. But he's crying out for mercy. He says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's acknowledging, I can do nothing to take this guilt away from me. Lord, I need you. He's casting himself upon the Lord. He's worshiping, honoring the Lord in the midst of his grief over his sin. And so all of these things we take together, the idea of that heart posture of, of bowing, of kneeling before the Lord, of, of reverence, of holiness, emotions from joy to grief, all of it has to do with the right view of who God is. Acknowledging in our innermost being who God is and what he has done and responding appropriately and through our words. And yes, that should play out also in how we live, as we talked about last week. And that's something that can be neglected at times. But we shouldn't let our pendulum swing all the way to where we say, well, I worship the Lord with how I live, so I don't need to, to worship verbally. No, we do. Over and over again, Scripture calls us to worship the Lord through declarations, through prayer, through singing, in these different ways as we respond from, from our innermost being. And that's what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, verse 24 and 25, it says, But the hour is coming, and is now, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now we can debate about what does He mean by worship in spirit, and we'll get into this later in a future episode. But is, is he talking about the Holy Spirit worshiping in the Holy Spirit or talking about our, our personal spirit, our um, innermost being? I believe he's talking about our innermost being. We'll get into some more reasons of that uh, later on. But it says in spirit. It doesn't say in the Holy Spirit. or even It doesn't even say in Holy Spirit. It just says in spirit and truth. That when we praise the Lord, we must be praising him for who he is in truth. Uh, not making up stuff about him. Not praising him for stuff he hasn't done. There should be truth marking our, our verbal worship. But it also must come from the inner person. It can't just be an external duty that we do. Because that's, that's not what God is after. He's after our inner hearts. As we respond to who He is and what He has done. As we worship Him with our words. We declare His worth. Honor Him. Praise Him. Thank Him. Cry out for Him. Offer our petitions as we through our declarations, our prayers, and our singing. It all comes from a heart responding to the Lord. And so all of that has uh, is kind of an overview about worshiping the Lord verbally. Now we may be thinking, okay, that, that sounds great, but we can just do that all by ourselves, right? I mean, last week we talked about the way that we live is being worship, and now we're talking about our verbal worship. It can sound pretty individualistic, and we should each personally choose to worship the Lord this way. But that is not the extent of worship. We cannot worship God fully just by ourselves. And that's what we're going to get into next week. We can, Lord willing, we'll consider the aspects of corporate worship. Of why we must gather with God's people. Because if we don't do that, there is an element of God's worship that we are neglecting. We should not do that. So, like I said, Lord willing, we'll get into the elements of corporate worship next week. And one thing I want to start doing, it's not going to be in every episode, but as time, uh, as things come up, 
I want to be sharing some other resources that relate to the subject matter or just have come up uh, via other podcasts or books or articles, whatever they may be. So uh, one resource that kind of relates to last week is this uh, the latest book by Jamie Dunlop, Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy. <laughs> and it's about the idea of pursuing love and unity within the context of a local church. And he gives in the elements about, about how we choose to walk in that. And it's been a follow-up companion to uh, the compelling community that Jamie wrote with Mark Dever. Um, I personally uh, benefited greatly from the compelling community but this is also a helpful book. Um, it gives a lot of real life examples of saying, okay, that, that theory sounds great, but how does this actually flesh out? So you can find it online. It's Amazon, Crossway, places like that. Uh, it's called Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy. It's again by Jamie Dunlop. But uh, yeah, like I said, like next week we'll continue this aspect about worship and dig into the elements of corporate worship. But until then, read the word and take your stand. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope this episode was helpful and an encouragement. For more resources, check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Registered Bible, the Holy Bible English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers. Used by permission, all rights reserved.